There was something special about my meeting with Pinkus Gutter that's hard to put into words. It was not that he was a Holocaust survivor, because when I met him, I'd already met hundreds of people who had survived the Holocaust. It was not that he was an amazing storyteller, even though I was mesmerized by his gentle tone and lyrical style. It was not that we shared an interest in music and had both lived in England, or that I had spent my childhood vacations in the Lake District of England at the very place he was brought to as an orphan survivor. I'm sure these shared qualities helped form a bond, but it was something to do with his neshama, his spirit, that was unusually captivating. He was both gentle and deep, and I felt I could listen to him for hours. Little did I know that one day I would. This book captures the story of Pinchas Gutter in his own words. You will witness the world of the Jews of large Poland through the eyes of a five-year-old, the world of the Nazis through the eyes of a seven-year-old, the world of the Warsaw Ghetto through the eyes of a ten-year-old, Maidanic concentration camp through the eyes of an eleven-year-old, slave labor through the eyes of a twelve-year-old, and finally, liberation through the eyes of a thirteen-year-old. You will observe the power of memory and the ability to recall and retell the story of that boy as remembered by an 85-year-old man. Pinchas Gutter has told his story in many different ways over a 20-year period. In 1993, he spoke on camera at Toronto's Holocaust Memorial Centre and gave a four-hour interview about his life. In 1995, he gave another video interview to USC Shoah Foundation, covering his life history. In 2002, I had the opportunity to make a documentary with him called The Void, In Search of Memory Lost, which was about his first visit back to Poland 57 years after he was forced to leave the country after becoming a slave labourer. In 2014, he made another documentary, Politische Pola Juda, which tells his life story through visiting the places where he once lived. In 2015, he answered 1,500 questions about his life to become the first ever interactive interviewee as part of USC Shoah Foundation's New Dimensions in Testimony program. In 2017, he became the first Holocaust survivor to tell his story in full room-scale virtual reality. The VR piece, The Last Goodbye, allows viewers to join him as he journeys back to the Nazi death camp, Majdanek, and explains where he lived, including where his family was murdered. In addition to telling his story in these various media formats, Pinchas lectures widely, attends and leads commemorations, speaks at Holocaust centres in Toronto, Cape Town, Johannesburg and other cities around the world, and is a regular guest on the annual March of Remembrance and Hope, where each year he accompanies Canadian students to Poland and Germany. Over the years, as Pinchas relayed his testimony, I had the privilege of being his friend throughout the process, documenting the way in which his memory unfolded, listening for many hours to the details about his story. My role in introducing this volume is not to tell the story of Pinchas Gutter for you, but to reflect briefly on some themes to consider, which are deeply embedded in his story. There are many personal accounts about the Holocaust, and all of them are different. No single experience was typical. People started in different places, came from different backgrounds, spoke different languages, and had different ways of making decisions. 
The Nazis created a labyrinth of ghettos and camps that included rules and regulations that changed by the day. One SS officer was more brutal, another more cunning. If someone had relatives or knew Gentiles, these connections could make all the difference. A variety of factors meant that two family members, starting in the same place with the same background, could have completely different experiences based on luck and circumstance. The role of memory also comes into play, and how each person remembers details differently. A person's age and gender would also result in different narratives of the same events. When you read the story of Pinchas Gutter, you will be reading an absolutely unique account of the Holocaust. While his account contains key historical facts and particular details that are relevant to other survivors, it's important to keep in mind that each survivor experienced these facts differently. Pinchas is no exception. His account brings both private and public memories to light in a way that is particular to his experience. There are a few key themes that stand out in his story. Family, religion, resistance, morality, memory, loss, and recovery. Pinkus Gutter focuses on family for several reasons. The first is that as a child, he had a vivid memory, even from infancy. Pinkus recalls details of family life. He remembers his father's daily routine, activities his mother carried out in the kitchen, his paternal grandfather's presence in his life, a fleeting memory of his paternal grandmother's death, and the farm where his maternal grandparents lived and worked. Pinkus has a sense of belonging and rootedness in Poland. Family represents security, love and heritage, which also extends to his aunts, uncles and cousins. He avoids pure nostalgia and at times relives the emotions and life they once lived. It's worth remembering that none of the people that he mentions, with the exception of his grandmother who died long before the war, has a grave he can visit. The inclusion of their names and the painting of the characters is in itself an act of memorial, which is particularly true for his twin sister, Sabina. The loss of his twin is like losing a part of himself. When he writes about her, he gives back a part of her life and creates a lasting memorial to her. In terms of religion, Pinchas was brought up in a Hasidic household, which meant strict observance of Jewish laws and Hasidic customs. His descriptions of his daily life as a child bear out the routines and the sense of loyalty to the Torah and to the leaders of the community to which his family belonged, especially the Gera Rebbe, who was the chief rabbi of their sect. Pinchas uses terminology that belongs to his faith tradition or that references specific parts of Yiddish culture from which he comes. Yiddish, the language used by East European Jews has a deeply rooted relationship between language and culture that is not easily translated. He uses these terms in their original form to help explain the Jewish milieu in which he once lived and still does to this day. He is careful to show how the arrival of the Nazis and the imposition of their laws made it extremely difficult to survive as a practicing Jew. He recounts experiences that illustrate the difficulties of inhabiting a Jewish identity, such as his refusal as a young boy to have his payas, the sidelocks of hair worn by Hasidic men, 
cut off even when his parents, who were observant Jews, insisted that he do so. He also discusses how the everyday religious practices his family followed before the Nazi period became increasingly difficult to observe in a meaningful way. The more restrictions the Nazis imposed, the less possible it was to practice. He gives glimpses of his family's struggle to maintain their religious identity as the Nazis removed one basic right after another. Pincus's testimony exemplifies various modes of resistance. On the one hand, the Gutter's family's life was stripped away and it appears that Pincus's parents quickly decided to conceal their religion as a survival technique. On the other hand, there are repeated insights into the family's prayer practice and how Pincus's parents attempted to maintain a Jewish education for their son. This act of defiance is often referred to as spiritual resistance, maintaining one's religious and spiritual identity even when the system in power is structured to destroy it. In 1942, when Pincus's father, Mendel, prays secretly with his son in an attic on Yom Kippur, the act not only is a defiant one, but also plays a defining role in Pincus's identity. The fact that Mendel had the strength to perform his meaningful act with his son provides an enduring sense of strength for Pincus, who, to this day, leads the Yom Kippur services at the Kieva Synagogue in Toronto. Similarly, Pincus recalls the experience of having his bar mitzvah in Chenstachova slave labor camp when Rabbi Gottel Eisner gathered together a minion of ten Jewish men and against the rules of the camp, which forbade collective worship, blessed the then 13-year-old Pinchas. This act was a defining moment both of his experience in the camp and his development as a Jewish man. Resistance is also present in his story through the small acts of his parents to keep him and his twin sister Sabina alive. The family lived through the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, in which Pincus's observations vividly detail the armed resistance and how his family were, briefly, not victims, but armed combatants against their foes. The sight of the 12-year-old twins with their hands up in surrender was not because they were victims, but because, momentarily, they were being feared. In terms of the theme of morality, there is no sense that Pincus views the world as a black-and-white divide between evil Nazi perpetrators and innocent Jewish victims. From a moral perspective, even under such an extreme situation in which independent choices were more difficult to make, he reveals that people did make choices and had to live by them. There were only very rare occasions when he encountered German guards in a personal way, and only one Oberschaffführer, senior sergeant, who was even remotely helpful. Pincus is quick to acknowledge how that official's personal gesture of placing him in the kitchen helped him, but he also understands that the motive was not one of compassion. The Oberschaffführer asked Pincus to steal food from the kitchen in return for him being placed there to work. The transaction probably saved Pincus's life as he gets much-needed nourishment at a critical point, but he cannot thank the guard for his generosity of spirit because even in that situation, Pincus was merely an instrument of the guard's will. It is his regrettable experience and therefore conclusion that in the world of the murderous oppression created by the Nazis, there was no room for human compassion towards the Jews.
Pincus was closer to his fellow Jews and therefore is able to provide a more intimate perspective of the choices that Jews made. We learn of Jews who had a chance to use the relative privilege they had secured for good, like the Jewish policeman Katz, who helped Pinchas in the work camp at Skarzysko. In the same work camp, we also hear of Fela Markovichova, the Jewish women's work commandant, whom he describes as not a nice woman. Of course, he understates the power she wielded over the Jews in her control in return for her own protection and that of her family. He wants his readers to know that the choices were complex and that not all victims were victims in the same way. Memory is probably the most prominent theme throughout Pincus's story, although at times it is a little more difficult to detect. There is a sense that he is not only telling his story but reliving it. He carefully reconstructs his home and family life, takes us into the kitchen, allows us to feel his family, feel the freedom of being in the mountains when he was sick. He wants us to feel a visceral sense of physical pain and personal disappointment when he describes being attacked outside a church. There is a misperception that historical autobiographies like this one are designed as factual accounts. The episodes described all happened, but the details we remember and the importance we assign to them are not because of the facts themselves, but how those events made us feel at the time. This is particularly true of extreme events, which have a tendency to remain more vivid due to the strong emotions associated with them. Reading Pincus's memoir, it is worth asking why he might have chosen particular episodes that stand out and what the emotion is behind those memories. For example, he describes asking a man with boils where his father had gone immediately after the selection in Majdanek. The specificity with which he writes, He didn't say a word, he just lifted his head to heaven, clearly shows that Pincus has a deep sense of how he felt in that moment in that the man's unforgettable gesture becomes ingrained in his memory for the rest of his life. No memory is more painful than the loss of his twin sister, Sabina. The closeness of his relationship with her and being children together at 11 years old intensifies the cruel manner of her death. The details of this experience give insight into the guilt and despair he still feels over her murder. But it is not the physical loss of Sabina that stands out most. It is the ultimate loss of her memory that weighs most heavily on Pinchas. As her twin, he was close to her, but somehow the memory of what she was like as a child, who she was as a person, how her face looked, all elude his memory. This inability to remember is particularly stark because he makes clear in other parts of his story just how good his visual memory is. The loss of Sabina is therefore a double blow. She is the one he wants to remember the most, and yet he cannot retrieve her. Ironically, the depth of that loss is what drives him to recall and tell his story, because he not only voices the story for himself, but every time he does so, including in this book, he retrieves Sabina from the ultimate loss of being forgotten altogether. As painful as the loss of Sabina was, Pinchas' recovery of memories helps provide some hope to his otherwise soul-destroying experience. No more so than the rediscovery of his camp friend, Yaakov. In 2002, I was with Pinchas and his wife Dorothy in Poland making the documentary The Void in Search of Memory Lost. 
It was his first trip back to Warsaw and he had arranged to meet Holocaust survivor Jakov Gutenbaum, who had been in the work camp Skarzysko Kamienno with him. I sat in the room with the two of them as they discussed their pasts and was filming when Pinchas realized that the man he was sitting with was Yaakov, the boy he thought had been murdered 55 years earlier. I had heard Pinchas's story about a young boy with a limp in Skarzysko Kamienna who had been pulled out of a line right next to him. Only as both men talked was it revealed that Gutenbaum had actually managed to escape death and was transferred to a different camp, Schlieben, the following day. In that moment, not only was memory recovered, but healing also took place. Prior to this meeting, the lack of closure meant that Pinchas had borne the loss of Yaakov, his only witness, for over half a century. It's interesting to note that Pinker saves the story of the meeting with Guttenbaum until the epilogue. Memories in Focus is mostly about closure. There are many layers to the narrative which are worth spending time to discover. It is an intricately woven tapestry of memory, facts, social history, religious perspectives and commentary on the meaning of the events. Each of the episodes that Pinchas is prepared to reveal to us have imbued in them many dimensions which are not discernible up close. Like any tapestry, the individual stitches are intricately woven but only truly make sense when one stands back and views the entire piece as a whole. In this book, Pinchas stitches together the moments of his story that matter the most to him. Each story chosen for its personal significance and universal relevance he tells this story in order to no longer be alone in bearing its burden. He tells this story so that its readers can widen the circle, carry the memory, and be the legacy that Sabina never had. To Stephen Smith, Fincy Viterbi, Executive Director of USC Shoah Foundation, 2017.